0: Last week we took a look at, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? First service, somebody still shouted, no. (laughs) But we went through the teaching, and, and in that lesson, do you all remember who the two groups were that tried to trip up Jesus? The Herodians and the Pharisees, Right the Pharisees and the Herodians. And we did a little bit of a case study on the Pharisees and the Herodians. And, and Jesus just, after they did their whole deal, Jesus called them hypocrites. He went right to the jugular. He cut to the chase. He just slammed them and then, you know, dropped it with the denarius. And he says, who's the image. And he just left them speechless where it says they marveled at his words and they left them and went their way. They're like, how do we, how do we even contend with this guy? Well the Sadducees who um the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't totally get along. The Sadducees only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They don't believe in a resurrection. They 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 just believe that when you die you just dissipate and and whereas the Pharisees have all of the Old Testament and they also have the traditions of the fathers and the Mishnah and all kinds of, you know, different readings. And they believe in a resurrection and there's far more uh, biblical aspects to their life. And so the Sadducees see that the Pharisees and the Herodians get stifled by Jesus. So they think, we'll take him down. And, And Jesus is getting one attack after another. And at this point, the Sadducees come and they're going to uh, drop their bomb on them. And this is, they have a case study that has, you know, tripped up everybody and, and they've always used it against the Pharisees and the Pharisees can't contend with it. And they're going to try this on Jesus. So they bring their case study and it's a hilarious case study. And that's what we're going to be studying today. So uh, would you please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord? We're going to pick up uh, Matthew 22, verse 23. So the same day, the same day that the Pharisees and Herodians tried to trip up Jesus, that same day, the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection. If you want to remember Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection. That is why they're sad. You see, okay. (laughs) The same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and asked him saying, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. That's out of Deuteronomy 25, one of the first five books. They're quoting scripture and they say, that's what the Lord says to keep the family line going. If the brother dies, the, the wife is to marry the other brother. And then the, the lineage continues. And then they start their case study. Verse 25. Now, Jesus, there were uh, with us seven brothers The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother, likewise the second also, and the third, and even to the seventh. (laughs) She's like a black widow. (laughs) Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had had her. Now, they're like, (laughs) put that in your pipe and smoke it. Jesus answered and said to them, watch this. You are mistaken. (laughs) Last time he said, you're hypocrites. This time you are mistaken. Not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, and this is when Moses was seeing the burning bush and God spoke to him. God said, I am the God of Abraham." I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at Jesus's teachings. And so at this point, verse 34, now the Pharisees think, well, let's try another, let's try another approach to Jesus. So the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees and they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer <laughs> asked him a question, testing him saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Of course, Jesus does the shaman. he says, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law, the prophets, and he just slams them. And um, this is an interesting passage and it's, it's, verse 30 is even more interesting. We're going to take a look at it. And when we're finished, we're going to have fun together. So let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word and Holy Spirit lead us into all truth. As the Sadducees did not understand the word, they were mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And and Lord, you've spoken to us in relation to what you said to Moses. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. Lord, what does that mean to us? And what is it you're trying to say to us? And Lord, we are prepared. Our hearts are open to receive all you'd have. So, Spirit of the living God, minister now, we pray, according to your riches in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, have a seat, please. So, uh, the Sadducees try to jump in after the, the Pharisees had failed, and, and they come to him with this concept of, um, uh, of, a, of a case study. And this case study had tripped up all the Pharisees and the Sadducees come with this case study and there were, there were thousands of Sadducees. Uh, many of the high priests were Sadducees. They, they didn't believe in the remaining aspects of the scriptures that the Pharisees held to be, uh, um, God's word, but they did hold to the Pentateuch, the first five books. And, and, and in, if it wasn't in the first five books, they didn't buy it. And they couldn't see anywhere in there that resurrection was spoken of. So they denied the resurrection. They didn't think anything happened to you after you died. You just dissipated. And, and, and they, were, they were kind of liberal in their understanding. And yet the Pharisees said, no, there is an afterlife. We're accountable to God. They would quote out of Job and a number of other passages. And and the the Sadducees would contend and they would always use this passage of scripture out of Deuteronomy 25 where you know God's law says that if the brother dies the wife is supposed to marry the other brother and and they give this case study of 7 this number of completion they say all the brothers die none of them have kids heaven comes which one is she supposed to be married to And you know the Pharisees are like oh well, this is a perplexing I'm not certain if it, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it it's this kind of thing and you're like yeah oh wait if he can't lift it he's not Oh no, he can't. Oh well, then he wouldn't be. Oh no, he can't. Oh gosh, what are we doing here? <laughs> it's it's one of these things where people love to come up with some sort of statement where they can dismiss God and their accountability to God. You know, where where did where did um, where did Adam and Eve's you know son get a wife? Right, Cain. Where did Cain get a wife? They had other children. Well, it doesn't say that. <laughs> so because it's not spoken. Of, well, I'm not going to believe any of it. So, you, you dismiss every aspect of Scripture because the Scripture is silent in one respect, and you come up with every kind of excuse not to be submitted to the Lord. And what's fascinating about this? This is what they're doing. They've given this case study, and they think that they win. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, driving on the bus, uh, I was reading my Scripture, and I'm coming over the Coronado Bay Bridge, and this this guy says to me, "Why are you reading that trash?" And I said, "I'm sorry." He said, "Why are you reading that trash?" I said, "Well." It's the word of God. He goes, No, it is. And it's filled with all kinds of. He says, Watch this. And he turns and he says, Read that. And I read it. And he switches to it. And he goes, Contradiction, read that. And I'm like, Whoa, it is. And he goes, Oh, look at this one. And he, and then, oh, he did it like eight times. I was stunned. And I'm thinking, Maybe this is a, filled with lies. But the Bible says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman need not be ashamed, rightly dividing word truth. I took that and I said, Okay, I got to find out. I got to take a look at this. I'm not going to take that guy. I don't even know who that is. And interestingly enough, he was placed on the bus right when, okay, but I'm going to study this. And so I started to, it it challenged me and I started to look at it and go, this isn't a contradiction. This this actually is, is, it's a confirmation of the text. And as I started to study all the difficulties in the biblical passages and I went for it and went all the way in, I realized how significant the scriptures are. I was blown away from cover to cover his most amazing book. And my life began to change simply by the study of it. And and here I am today, a kid that should have been dead on Halloween night with Leon. And before you is a man married twenty eight years and a pastor of a church with five wonderful kids and an unbelievable wife and watching miracles happen in the lives of others simply because the word of God affected my life. And and when Jesus looks at them and they give, them, they give Jesus this, this case study and they lay it out and they say, therefore, in the resurrection, which, which they don't believe in, therefore, in the resurrection, which one will she be married to? And Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. They're like, I'm sorry, you're mistaken. You're reading the scripture wrong. I'm what, what, Really? And he goes right to the scripture that they agree with. He uses one of the books of the first five books of the Bible. He takes their scripture He says, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. You have no clue in the power of God. You don't even know the scriptures. That guy thought he knew the scriptures because he did all of his little prep stuff on the bus. And he was trying to derail me. And I looked at, and I thought, you have missed a great opportunity because you have, you have done what you can to dismiss the scriptures because you already had a preconceived bias. You don't want to serve God. You don't want to submit to him. So you've dismissed him. If you had taken time to study, you would realize nothing you've said has any significance. That guy on the bus of, I I wish maybe, maybe he's listened to a sermon online. He's wrong. He's wrong. And as I'm going through this and I see this, Jesus says, you're mistaken, not knowing the scripture, nor the power of God for in the resurrection. He goes right to it. He goes, there is a resurrection. And in the resurrection, let me tell you something, fellas, in the resurrection, they are neither they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that was spoken to you? He says, this word was spoken to you. Have you not read it? You guys think you know the first five books. Let me just ask you this in the passage of scripture in Exodus chapter three when when Moses is speaking to the burning bush and the burning bush is speaking to him, God says, "I am." the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And they're like, oh, crud, he's right. And Jesus just does, you know, the mic drop and walks away. And the Pharisee, wait, we have another question for you. It's like endless. And he's contending with people with a bias. And they've got their little case studies and they go on with their life. But what's fascinating about Exodus chapter 3 that Jesus quotes to these Sadducees is he's pointing out the scripture doesn't say, now I was the God of Abraham, because of course we all know that as I'm speaking to you, Moses, Abraham died 400 years ago. I was the God of Abraham. No, no, no. He says, I am the God of Abraham. You see, you don't struggle in your relationship with God because lousy churches and bad pastors, and there's plenty of them. You know why you struggle in your relationship with God? It's very simple. There's not enough reality in the vertical of life for you to outweigh the horizontal reality. You think this is it, and you have none of this. When you spend time here, this makes total sense. It puts everything into perspective. When you don't have any of this, you come up with these fanciful ideas that you're some primordial soup in a co- cosmic accident and you've evolved from some single cell creature over billions and billions of years, contrary to the second law of thermodynamics that, that from, ka- from, from order goes chaos, but no, we're evolving, yet there's not one single transitional creature or evolving creature. You don't see a bird that became either nothing, nothing. And if you just want to go all the way back, where did you come from? Where's the beginning? For time to exist, there needs to be a beginning and an end. And you live in a world of matter and substance, and you just look at science and try to process in that capacity. Who started it? Well, it was a big bang theory. Okay, where did it come from and who pressed a button? And you go further back with these scientists who dismiss God and come up with the theories. Aliens did it. Okay, great. Then who put the aliens there? And you can take it all the way back in the insanity of it. I was thinking about this progressive move in the mindset of politics today that we just want to tear down everything, and we call it progressive. And after a while, you just run out of things to tear down. And everything that you like, you make legal, and everything you don't like, you make illegal. And you remove God from the equation, and and anyone who wants it, you just make it illegal. If we can just remove that out, we're going to be successful. And and I'm thinking we've had, especially in California, years and years and years of this. Years and years and years of this. And now they want to find waiters who have the audacity to give you a straw without asking and make it a $400 fine. You know what that's called? Grasping at straws. <laughs> that's insane. How long will we do this? And we're going to make it legal and we're going to do all these things. Yet God says, you don't know the word of God, nor the power of God's word. You are mistaken that you think that this is the way life is supposed to be. You have no concept of this reality of the vertical because your life is outweighed by the horizontal. You're in a dash between the year of your birth and the year of your death, and it's a dash and you're trying to make something significant out of it. Why are you here and where are you going and what is the point? That's, that's left in every human heart. And as a Boy Scout, as a wayward kid sitting with a, a scarred, fire-leathered man licking his own cigarettes, it made more sense than anything I had seen. and i watched that man's life and 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 how somebody could endure 70% of his body being burned and losing friends and love god it doesn't make sense why why an 88-year-old man would stand before a congregation it doesn't make sense why folks who've been wounded would want to even endeavor with that we just go on just to dismiss everybody and and the 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 smoke and mirrors of 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 what hollywood is thinking they're doing This is how you handle hurt. You reconcile. You you receive forgiveness and you give it. And that is what the scriptures are declaring that Jesus was pointing out, that you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Today you witness the power of God reconciling hurting hearts to one another by the power of forgiveness. And, And Jesus says, they're not given in marriage in heaven you know as a minister i i've done over 300 weddings funerals almost a year of my life doing weddings and and as and one of my favorite is, is the brides coming in, the doors open and the bride comes in. That's why at the new facility, I want to make it just resplendent for a wedding. I want a narthex and, and a, a, a vestibule, two doors. First one's open up, the bride comes in, you kind of see her sh- or just the outline. And then also the doors open up and you just watch the groom go, oh. and she's just walking down and she's just, you know, nothing more beautiful than a woman on her wedding day. Just, I don't know how they walk, but this, that was like John Wayne, but. If John Wayne were to be a bride, it would be, (sighs) anyways, but she's coming down and what I see and, and, and some of you go, well, how do you see that a marriage, a wedding is a microcosmic picture of Christ's love for the church. So Jesus is the groom and, and the bride is the church. And she's coming down in white because he's cleansed us of all unrighteousness. His blood was shed. Though your sins were scarlet, I've washed you as white as snow. And you see her coming down radiant, beautiful, nothing more prettier than a a woman on her wedding day. She's walking down and it's just stunning, stunning. And I see that and I think, Lord, that's how you see us. We we do all these things to hurt people, and we have all these interpersonal conflicts. And your blood washes us, and we live in unity. And and you, you you're bringing us to yourself. And and we're the bride, and you're the groom. And this is that picture of of marriage. If a man lays down his life, he gains a whole new one. The two shall become one flesh. We're unified. It goes from eros, which is this attractive love to agape, where you lay your life down to this phileo, where it's a mutual love, where we have like mind and we live in unity together. 28 years of marriage come April 1st. Michelle and I have been married and I've said this a thousand times. We could be in a crowded room on her birthday. She could be opening up gifts and you, I could tell by the movement of her eye and none of you would have a clue, but I'd know if she loved the gift or hated it because we're One. And you know where that oneness comes from? We've endeavored the loss of children. We have, lo- we've endeavored moves. We've endeavored the loss of finances and, and struggles and changes of jobs and, and sickness and family, the loss of parents. We've endeavored through that. We've endeavored through kids. We've gone through all these struggles with them, sleepless nights wondering if they're alive. And our hearts come closer and closer and we're praying and we become one and and i hurt her and she forgives me and she hurts me and i forgive her and we become closer and nobody knows me better than she does and she loves me and vice versa and that's that unity that God wants in a fallen world that he's, he's expressing in his love for the church. And how does that happen? The way Michelle and I dwell together in unity is because there's forgiveness and there's mercy and there's reconciliation and we become closer. Where the bone is broken, when it's mended, it's stronger there than anywhere else in the body. But the beauty of the church is that Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed for the remission of sins so that we would be one with the Lord. We're reconciled to God. We become one with him. No longer in heaven is marriage necessary because intimacy and reality and clarity and transparency and purity is all there. We're one. So, you know, you the last service we had a couple married 57 years, it was their anniversary. And I can imagine the one going, so we're not gonna be together in heaven? No, we'll be together, but we're not gonna be married. No, it's even crazier than that. We're going to be closer than we've ever been. It's, it's, it's this picture that God says that there is a resurrection. You know, Job wrote, and and interestingly enough, Job was the, was the oldest book in the Bible. And in Job, and this is the, 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 the verse that God gave me for my mother's funeral. Job 19, for I know that my redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Job knew there was a resurrection. There is life beyond this life. Jesus said to the man who came to him, said, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. And he, says, he, he said, but let me first go bury my, my parents. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead. And what he was saying is, man's a trichotomy, body, soul, spirit. We have a body. We have an intellect and a mind, but we also have a spirit. It's a trichotomy of man. And if we don't know the Lord or have a relationship with the Lord, the spirit doesn't dwell with us. We're just walking dead people, basically. Our heart is beating. We're physically alive. We're soulishly alive, but spiritually we're dead. And when our body ceases to exist as time clicks, and you just think about this, for some of those who are older in the congregation, that clicking scares you, right? Right? No, some, maybe. I, I get a little frightened by it. At 53, the wheels are falling off. Some of the younger kids are going, what is that noise? It doesn't, is it timing for music? Because I'm, I'm really into the music. But there's, you, you have a clock in the back, you have a watch here, you have one on your phone. And somebody's is going off and won't stop. And the idea is there has to be a beginning and an end a beginning and an end. And for all of us, the Bible says it's appointed once for man to die, then judgment will stand before God, give an accounting of our life. And on this earth, you're to be reconciled. Really? What is it? Oh, you want to do it outside Jim, or you want to do it there? Is it, is it Linda? Are you blaming? It's the woman thou gave me Lord. Do we have it? Cause I have a bucket of water. I can put it in. Can you give it to an usher and they can walk it out while you're working on it? or yeah, just, just, just take it outside. There, See, look how easy that is. And the cool thing is nobody can call you. And you don't know what time it is. So this doesn't matter. So the idea is we're to be reconciled to the Lord. We have a moment in time. And it's that dash between when we're born and when we die. That's life, reconciliation, to be reconciled to God, to be relinked to God. And in heaven, that won't be necessary for marriage because we don't need that picture of Christ's love for the church because we'll be living it. Right? And they got it. And one of the things that blessed me is when Jesus said to them, he says, Have you not read what was spoken to you? This is, this is God speaking to you. He's speaking to me. And he was speaking to the Sadducees. Have you not written what God has spoken to you? Exodus 3, your book, talking to the Sadducees. God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I was so blessed by that. That verse ministered so much to my heart this week. Like I could hear the Lord saying to me, I am the God of, of Roy and Louise McCoy, my mom and dad. Mom died in 2010, dad died last year. I am the God of Roy and Louise McCoy. I am the God of Bob Gainsley. I am the God of Roby Duke. I can think of others that have passed. I am the God of Med Fowler. And the reason why it blesses me is because I know I'm gonna see him again. I know in whom they've trusted. They weren't walking dead people. They were alive on this earth and they're alive in heaven because they trusted Christ. They had been united with him. They had accepted his forgiveness. They asked for forgiveness and they received it. And the beauty of it is, I know that I will see them again. I know I will. For those of you who lost loved ones, I'd just say. And and the reason why those names came to me is because there's times where I'm driving along in life and uh, I'm just kind of derailed by memories. And I'm comforted. For those of you who don't know if your loved ones had ever trusted the Lord, I want you to know this. Everything you ever said to them Everything you ever declared to them about these scriptures, one of the most profound moments in someone's life is just before they die. The Bible says that we're absent from the body, present with the Lord. And when the body's shutting down, the last sense of the human body to go is hearing. That's why, you know, I, I, I'm i always telling love, speak to them, talk to them, let them know. And they're a captive audience. So there's going to be folks in heaven you're going to be surprised by that. It's like they stole heaven. I mean, they slid into home like... You don't give up, you don't give up, and that's special. The multitudes were astonished by this. they knew that that Jesus was right, the Sadducees did too, and they'd been schooled, and the Pharisees try to jump back onto the bandwagon and and they come at him with an attorney saying, "You know what is the greatest commandment and Jesus quotes them. Uh, the, the commandment that every Jewish child would memorize, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds this. He says, on these two commandments, he points to the Pharisees. He sees the Sadducees over there. He says, on these two commandments, hang all the law of the prophets. You can take Genesis, Exodus, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy—you can go all the way down through all the books of the Old Testament, and you can sum them up in these two verses: "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind; love your neighbor as yourself." On these two commandments, hang on to all the law of the prophets. Have a nice day. <laughs> and they're like, "Well, this is this is this is amazing." And, and and if you go through this, and this is one of those things I got a kick out of—they're doing anything they can to justify the stupidity of their life. The Sadducees use a story of a woman who married seven brothers. We call that Hollywood. (laughs) Uh, Interesting about this, that's seven brides for seven brothers. In this case, it's seven brothers for one bride. But you know who's in this movie? uh, Fascinating. Uh, One of the the brothers, uh, Matt Maddox. You guys know our our, uh, missionary in Cyprus, Tim Maddox? That's his dad. Tim had the privilege to lead his father to the Lord. His father had left his mother um, with the two, with the three boys and took off with a chorus girl and Tim never knew his dad. Tim went through a drug addiction, heroin addiction, ended up in prison, got hepatitis. He came to Christ in prison. His whole life changed around. He reconnected with his father in his late eighties and his his dad you know, it had other children, so Tim met half-brothers he never knew he had, and he had the privilege to lead his father to the Lord before he died. You want to talk about the power of reconciliation. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And I, and I look at that and I think, you know, Hollywood makes a story out of, out of this thing in a sense. But it gets worse than that, especially in America. You guys know this? Onida, It's silverware. Uh, the silverware company. Actually, they went out of business in 2006. They they used to be, in uh, in New York, the state of New York, the Onida, and they they started in the 1840s, uh, late 1840s, and they did silverware, and they became uh, a family name, a you know a brand known throughout the world, Onida silverware. And what's fascinating about the Onida uh, organization is it started in 1848 by a minister who had graduated from Yale Se- uh, Seminary. And he was an ordained minister, uh, his name was uh, uh, John Noyes, John Humphrey Noyes, and he he looked at the scripture, especially uh, this passage of scripture and 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 he, he read, "For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. And he had read in the book of Acts where it said that the the people sold all that they had and they laid their possessions at the apostles' feet, and he came up with a concept of communism. Uh, where, you know, everyone from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And he created this idea of Christian communism. And he started the Oneida, well, community. It was more of a cult. And it was a dreamlike place in America for about 20 years from the 1840s to about the 1860s. And many of the, the men, because it was in a upper portion of New York where no one really knew where it was, none of them were drafted into the Civil War and they were able to continue to produce. But they lived... And he's he's the one this is the guy right here this is this is uh, John Humphrey Noyes. He's the one who coined the term free love. This isn't the this isn't the 60s. But he's the dude. He came up with the concept of free love and he had taken that passage of scripture out of out of Matthew 22:30. And he created this community, this Oneida community, and the concept was free love, industrial prosperity, communism and capitalism, women's lib, millennial Christianity. They all appeared to come together in this sunny kind of future together. He actually had formulated through the scriptures, just coming up with his own deal, communism, capitalism, women's lib, millennial Christianity, and free love. He He looked at Matthew 22, 30, and he said were neither given in marriage and he, they were they were uh, perfectionists. They they believed that man could obtain for perfection. And and he had this funky idea and he you know, he just put it all together. He he looked at that and he said, okay, so if we're not given in marriage then we really shouldn't practice marriage. And he said, but we have urges. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if you need me to describe it, boys, did you study that already? And you got these urges, you know what I'm saying? So how do we deal with those urges? Well, we'd, I mean, that's an earthly urge, and it's not going to be necessary in heaven. So what we're going to do is um, we're just, you're going to interview. And if it's mutually acceptable, then you inter- interview. It's like the biblical word for no. Anybody following me here? And so they would, they would do the interview, and they'd sit down, and they'd look, and they actually did eugenics where they they wanted to make a pure race. And so in the interview process, the entire community would interview and see if this couple should be with this couple and if they should have a child. And they'd kind of look at the genetics of it, right? Well, we don't want to carry on that trade. Margaret Sanger, she was a eugenicist. She's the one who started Planned Parenthood. She wanted to get rid of this inferior races. That's why the majority of Planned Parenthoods are in, yeah, awful, Google it. Don't, don't think I'm making it up. So they were, they had this idea of doing that communism from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And they all shared everything. And it was all just, and the women didn't have to wear corsets. It was kind of cool as a women's lib thing. And they got to cut their hair short and they got to not just do domestic chores. They could go out and work manufacturing. And they were way ahead of their time in relation to this. And they still practice capitalism because communally they would operate communism, but capitalistically they would sell and then they would share the the portions of it and they started to create in a sense unions long before that they had been put together and and as he did this it, when he when he thought of this idea of of uh interviews, this is how they viewed complex marriage a system in which all members of the community are married to one another noise believed that marriage was stopping people from reaching perfection and he preached that it did not exist in heaven so it was unnecessary on the earth and and so they there was over 300 people um at its peak and uh they all uh, interviewed each other yeah it was odd I can go into it; it would creep you out. Just do a study on it. I've been reading it. It's I've done much reading on it. Those are some of the perfect children. That's how they practice their eugenics, and these are the result of you know how they operated. And I, I share that all with you because this guy clearly, as we went through this passage, when he was putting this together, having been educated at Yale and all these other things. He didn't know the scriptures nor the power of God, and he tried to fit his own utopia and come up with his own ideas and took the scripture out of out of context and he just came up with this fanciful idea of all these things and what's what's interesting is when he says he speaks of the resurrection he speaks of the accountability and Jesus stifles the Sadducees and he lays this out and he points out the whole concept of it the the multitudes were astonished, and then he goes into this he says What is the greatest commandment? And, and it seems like John Noyes wanted to know the Lord, but he, he thought of perfection, which doesn't exist in the Scriptures. He spent more time on the horizontal than he did on the vertical. His son became an agnostic, and, and so they, 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 they couldn't carry it on, and he actually got in trouble for polygamy and had to run off to Canada. And when the leadership was melted down in the Onida Corporation, guess what everyone ended up doing when they had no leadership? Guess what they did? They they married the person that they loved. They they wanted intimacy, they wanted honesty, they wanted truthfulness, and they started and they they became so committed to fidelity that the pendulum went the complete opposite direction. And they became the strongest corporation. 1947, they were so embarrassed by their past that they took all of the records and they burned them as a, as a, a, a community. And they became some of the most faithful people and, and created one of the greatest organizations. And they all became very wealthy as a result of that. They went back to biblical principles, they stayed with those, and everything changed. And, and I say this because when the Pharisees came back to take a stab at Jesus and asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at that. This is the the vertical. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, hang all the law of the prophets. Now, if you don't live in the reality of the vertical, you'll never be successful in the horizontal. Just ask John Noyes. you've got to be connected with the Lord to be connected with each other. And to be connected with the Lord means in a fallen world, to be connected with each other requires tough stuff. And we endeavor through that. And we're able to mend in all of that and become intimate as a fellowship because Christ has made possible for us to be reconciled to each other because he reconciled us to himself. And I close with this. Jesus said, the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. But here's what we do, and I've shared this before, but here's what we do. We take the clarity of what God gave us and we add a third commandment to screw it all up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, love your neighbors yourself. And then we add this one. Pastor... I heard the sermon, okay, I heard it. But I can't love others until I first learn how to love myself. Oh wait. Really? Yes, I don't love me. I just don't, I just don't love me. Well, why don't why don't you love yourself? Well, because I'm ugly. Oh. Oh, see, you're wrong. What do you mean I'm wrong? I'm ugly. I don't love myself. I go, no, you're wrong. I'm going to help you watch. If you really hated yourself, you'd be happy you were ugly. Yes? What you're really saying is, I love myself so much that I'll even take negative affirmation. As long as the focus is on me, I'll do whatever I have to do <laughs> to make sure you're talking about me. What you really want me to say is, oh, you're not ugly. And then you go, really? No, no, you're, you're wonderful. <gasps> I am. Just put that main line into that vein. Oh, that's good. <laughs> me, me, <laughs> me. Less of you, more of me. I love me. You love yourself. You know how I know that? Because I love myself. And you're just like me. You think I put this sermon together because of you. I'm not even thinking of you. I was too busy thinking of me. I seldom think of you that hurts you because you want me to think about you and not about me or my family you hurt my feelings I had no idea that you even had them I want to tell you My dad used to take you down the walk of the hallway and show you all the pictures of the family year after year. I hated every family photo. I'm the youngest of four. I never got the chance to decide which picture we'd take. So all my kids in my family are all, Molly's picking her nose, Kelly's chewing her fingernails, you know, kids are all, uh, we're wearing the wrong color shirt. I mean, it's all bad. But I never had a say because I'm the youngest. And you know why I don't like those photos? Because I don't look good in any of them. (laughs) Because we all know it's all about, everyone say it, me. Here, when this becomes the reality and this becomes the byproduct, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbors yourself. That creates a cross. What's the cross for? Apostle Paul says, I, Rob McCoy, me, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I, me, Rob McCoy, who lives but it's Christ who lives in me to willing to do of his good pleasure. I don't like tension. I don't like what we went through. But I sure love the byproduct. I, me, Rob McCoy, didn't want to do that. But because the Lord commanded it, this built something sturdy. He went to that cross, and he endured the pain to set us free. The Father willed it. He did it. And we love the Lord, and we love each other. We receive it, and we give it. As you've received forgiveness, you extend forgiveness. And that is the power of God and his word. And it's not for you to make up and do what you please with it. There is a resurrection. You will stand before the Lord, but the joy of it for all of us to realize is I am the God of Roy and Louise McCoy. You know, I'm on this earth. I want to make sure that I can say that God is your God and that I will see you in the life to come. There is a heaven And there are a lot of walking dead people, but Christ came to reconcile you and make you spiritually alive. And when the vertical takes precedent over the horizontal, the world is healed by the power of the cross. If you've received Christ as your Savior, this table is open to you. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me you come to the table, you take the communion, you go back to your seat, you sit down and you hold the the bread and the cup in your hand. You realize this is a representation of his body that was broken from me. He did it in obedience to the father and he set me free. And this is his blood that was shed that though my sins were scarlet, he's washed me white as snow, just like the bride coming down the aisle to be reconciled to the father. That's me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And as you've forgiven me and you've cleansed me, I want to dwell in community to do that for others. You think that was easy? All hell broke loose. But he did it for you and me. Because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And if you were the only person on the earth, he would have done it just for you. But he did it for all of us. That's a good God. We have a good family. We're going to take communion together. And you know what? We're going to take communion together as a family that has been forgiven and has forgiven. That's profound. Enjoy that. Because this day, God is blessed. And so are we. Amen? Amen. Let's invite the worship team up. We'll prepare for communion. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to enjoy this time of communion, that, Lord Jesus, on the night you were to be betrayed and you knew all hell was going to break loose, you broke the bread and you said, this is my body broken for you. You held up the cup. You said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the remission of your sins. As often as you drink of this, as long as you partake of this, do it in remembrance of me. Every one of those that were at the table with you were to betray you or abandon you, but you died that they would be reconciled and you would forgive them and they would forgive one another and the church would be born. And Lord, we are your bride and you are our groom. And Lord, we do this because we love you and we're grateful. And so this day, God, as we take communion, realizing not only that we've been forgiven, but the joy that we have forgiven. What a blessing, God. Thank you for this family that we don't quit on each other. Thank you that we've been reconciled and we dwell together in unity. That comes at great expense, but we're grateful, God. In Jesus' name, amen.